we prepare our hearts to receive the word of God, let us ask God to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let's pray together. Creator God, you remind us that the darkness of ignorance and doubt cannot overcome your life-giving word. May your Holy Spirit, then, who first breathed out this, your word, shine your light. And once again, awaken us to the hearing and living of this radiant truth. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. This is the word of the Lord. It is written. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Advent, this season before Christmas, leading up to Christmas, as Pastor John has said, is a season of waiting. As children, we were keenly aware of this reality. As soon as we saw the Christmas decorations going up in the stores and around town and the toy catalogs coming in the mail, the anticipation and the excitement began to build. We were all waiting for Christmas morning to arrive because we knew the joy of the season would come to full fruition at that time. And you can probably all remember counting down the days until the day when that moment finally arrived to tear into the presents that had been carefully placed under the Christmas tree. So this season is marked by waiting with such an eager expectation, with such an aching hope, with such a joy-filled excitement, at least for presents. And even the secular world participates in waiting in this way, although it misses the true reality that the excitement around Christmas morning is pointing to. It focuses on what 
will be received on Christmas Day instead of who will be received on Christmas Day. But we as Christians should not miss it. We should not miss the truer and deeper reality that is the cause of this waiting. It isn't for gifts under a tree or even the family and friends who will gather around it. It is for the gift, Jesus Christ, who for us and for our salvation would come in order to one day hang on a tree that we might be released from oppression to sin and death and find peace with God. This is the waiting that we find in Scripture by everyone in the Nativity narrative. Mary was waiting, and so was Joseph. Elizabeth and Zechariah were waiting as well. The Magi had also been waiting, as had Simeon and Anna. Everyone was waiting, waiting for new life to be born waiting for the promised king to arrive, waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And so Advent is a time to remember and reflect on how the world awaited the Messiah and what his coming means for us all. But it's also a time for us to remember and reflect on how we also are in a perpetual state of waiting waiting for the Lord to come again. As the scripture says, the Lord is at hand. And what it it means by that is that Jesus, his coming again is eminent. Eminent not in the sense that it will happen in the near future, although it could, but instead as it refers to the proximity to the end of salvific history. After Jesus came, died, rose, and ascended into heaven, there is nothing left in God's great plan of salvation but for Christ to come again to judge the living and the dead and to fully usher in his kingdom of peace, joy, and righteousness. And it could happen at any moment. He will come, as scripture says, like a thief in the night. We live then in between his appearances, in between his coming in weakness and his coming in glory. We stand at every moment on the brink of Christ's return, and therefore, we must always be waiting and ready. This is what the Gospels tell us. Luke tells us, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door for him at once when he knocks, he comes and knocks. And Matthew tells us to be like virgins awaiting the coming of the bridegroom. Watch, therefore, Matthew says, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So Advent is a season of waiting, a season in which we are reminded why we are waiting and how we are to wait in order that we would keep ourselves spiritually awake and ready at all times to receive Christ. The question then is, how are we to wait? What should our waiting look like as Christians? Not just for Christmas Day to celebrate that God has become flesh and dwelt among us in Jesus Christ, but also, and more importantly, for the eminent return of Christ. And scripture gives us the answer to this question, but first we need to understand what our waiting is not. Our waiting is not passive. 
We aren't meant to be sitting around twiddling our thumbs. It isn't the sort of waiting that we perhaps do at a doctor's office where we just sit helplessly until our name is called or at the airport where we are stranded in a secured area just praying that nothing delays our flight. Rather, our waiting is active. Sort of like the waiting we do for Christmas Day to arrive. This is a season of much activity in the midst of our waiting, isn't it? There are many preparations to be made. We decorate our homes, we purchase presents, we make travel plans to visit family, or we ready our homes to host company. We send cards, we prepare meals. So it is, too, with how we are to await the return of the Messiah. It is a pregnant waiting, pardon the pun, a sort of like the waiting an expectant mother does, singularly focused on the coming baby. There's nothing more important to a mother during a pregnancy than doing all she can to ensure the baby is growing and healthy and preparing for the baby's arrival. Or as James puts it, be patient, therefore, brothers. Until the coming of the Lord, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. We should wait then as a farmer waits for the seed to come up from the ground and produce a harvest. The farmer does the work of nurturing the seed and the plant, but he must trust that the Lord will bring it to fruition. And so it is with our waiting. Our waiting is a time of active nurturing of our faith and readying ourselves for Christ's arrival. But just as our waiting mustn't be passive waiting, our waiting shouldn't be a distracted waiting either. We aren't meant to just fill up our time to keep ourselves busy for the sake of busyness. And sometimes the Advent season feels like distracted waiting, filled with needless hustle and bustle. We pack up our calendars to the brim, perhaps, so we don't have to feel the ache of waiting. Waiting is hard, isn't it? Being patient is difficult. The word patient actually comes from the same Latin word as passion, which translates literally as to suffer. And think about that the next time you wait at the doctor's office as a patient. So rather than keeping our minds attentive on what is to come, we pack our schedules full so we don't have any time to stop and think because it makes the time go faster, right? On top of all the decorating and shopping and cooking, we try to send out a year's worth of cards and schedule countless get-togethers with coworkers and friends because what would Christmas be without the ugly sweater party? And what should have been a time of eager expectation instead becomes a time of endless exhaustion. And in the midst of all the chaos, Christmas ends up feeling more like a chore than a celebration. But it might be that this season before Christmas really is just a microcosm of how the rest of our lives are often lived. I read an article recently about a man who was a pastor at a megachurch out in Oregon who perhaps at the pinnacle of his ministry stepped down from his position, not 
due to a moral failure, at least not as we often think of it, but due to exhaustion. And in reflecting on his decision, he stated that he used to think that the greatest threats to American Christianity were liberalism or secularism. But he has since changed his mind. He now believes that the greatest threat is hurry and busyness. We are, he says, way too busy, too hurried, too distracted, too exhausted to enjoy God. Do you agree with him? And in this season that is meant to be a time to prepare ourselves for the coming of Christ by making room in our lives for God's presence in our midst, we do the exact opposite. We fill our schedules full. Uh, Dearly beloved, this is a time for us to learn that busyness and hurry are antithetical to a life of pursuing God in his will. A pregnant woman does not nurture the growing baby inside of her by running nonstop. She needs a proper balance of activity and rest that she and her baby might be healthy. God tells us to be still before him and wait, to posture ourselves in a way that we are attentive to him. So our waiting is not a passive waiting or a distracted waiting. So then how are we to wait? And during this Advent season, we're going to explore this question at Covenant. We're going to think about what it means to wait actively instead of passively. We're going to think about what it means to wait in a focused and disciplined manner, in a manner that is fruitful rather than in a distracted manner. And we're going to do this by way of the prophecies concerning the coming Messiah from the prophet Isaiah. You see, Isaiah provides for God's people not just what they are to expect of the coming Messiah. Isaiah not only speaks to who the Messiah will be, but Isaiah provides insight on how the people of God are to wait and to prepare for the Messiah to arrive in light of who he will be. This is necessary since Isaiah is prophesying around the middle of the 8th century before Christ. These prophecies are given then hundreds of years before Christ and at a very dark and distressing point in Israel's history. During this time, the Assyrians under the reign of Tiglath-Pileser III were pressing in on God's people. The northern kingdom of Israel would be defeated and exiled by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom of Judah would be spared at that time, but a little over 100 years later would be sacked and exiled by the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar. Isaiah not only announced the people's fate for turning away from God, he also provided encouragement for those who would survive the exile. He told of the Babylonians' ultimate defeat. He encouraged the people to renew their faithfulness to God. And he also told them of their coming salvation. For instance, in chapter 25, Isaiah tells of a coming day when the Lord will erase pain and death from the face of the earth. Isaiah states, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. 
This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So Isaiah's message is not just of God's coming judgment, but also of his coming redemption. The people must wait and prepare themselves for this coming day. And this is the same message we see in the ninth chapter of Isaiah, our passage for this morning. We have to see the context first. The context is always key. At the end of chapter 8, Isaiah is telling people to wait on the Lord and warns that there will be a great darkness during this time. The darkness is due both to wickedness and ignorance and comes as a result of people turning away from God and looking to everyone and everything rather than God to find their purpose and meaning. They look to the occult and the things of this world, but they will not be satisfied with the explanations and results they find in these things because nothing and no one but the creator can provide for us meaning and purpose. No one but the Lord can save us from ourselves. The result is that they are plunged deeper and deeper into darkness. They have condemned themselves to live in confusion and spiritual famine and despair by refusing to seek God. And as they move deeper into darkness and confusion, they become irritated and enraged. And as they become irritated and enraged, they look to someone, anyone, to become the object of their anger. Isaiah says in verse 21 of chapter 8, And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. What do they do? In their emptiness, in their failure to find the solutions to their problems, they unleash on every object which crosses their path, but especially toward those who are deemed in some way able to relieve the problems, but unwilling to do so. Hence, they curse their king and their gods. They scream at their leaders, and when this doesn't produce the results they want, they turn and scream at the sky. Sound familiar? We live, dearly beloved, in an age that is deep in darkness and confusion too. This world is not confused about the state of things. All around us is suffering, violence and oppression and injustice, abuse of power and grief. And yet, the world casts God aside, refusing to seek him or his will. And the result is that we live in an age in which there is great animosity, great unrest, great division in which everyone is pointing fingers at everyone else for the problems we are facing in this world. People are becoming increasingly agitated and enraged that the government has not fixed the slew of problems we have decided need to be fixed, from wealth inequality to racism. The answers do not lie with the government, though, do they? And Isaiah continues, Having failed to find the solution by looking upward to the government and their false gods, they then look downward to find their own solution. They look to themselves for solutions to the world's problems. And what happens? They are plunged even deeper into darkness. Their darkness is compounded because the solution cannot come from within ourselves and within our own situation. 
Dearly beloved, does this all sound familiar? We have decided that the light to cast out the darkness exists in ourselves. There is a naive optimism from secular humanism that says that we can end the darkness with intellect and innovation. That we can fix the world's problems through advances in science and technology. Or that all we need to do is simply be kind to one another. There is a belief that we can work together to eliminate poverty, injustice, violence, and evil. That we can create a world of unity and peace. This is the message the world loves to spread, especially around Christmas time. Even as Jesus, the light of the world, is ignored during the season, the world harps on about peace and love and joy. Who needs Jesus? The answer is us. But the light that can cast out the darkness will never come from within us. But listen to what Isaiah says next. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. The gloom is not final. The anguish is not unending. People were experiencing the just results of their rebellion against God, but God would not abandon his people to their despair. He would break into their darkness and bring his light. When every uh, human attempt to bring light, to find a solution, to fix the problem, to satisfy ourselves has failed, God would bring the light. Not because he must, not because human craft had discovered a way to force his hand, but because he is good and gracious and loving. And from where was this light going to shine, according to Isaiah? Out of the very place that first felt the wrath of God through the Assyrians, around the Sea of Galilee. And how would God shine this light? How would God come to confront this world in all of our pride and arrogance? Would he send a warrior king to knock down the walls of oppression to him, and opposition to him, to force us into submission? No. Look at what Isaiah says. Who was he sending? A child. A child given as a gift. A child? Yes, a child. As one commentator puts it, God's answer to the oppression and hostility of this proud and cruel world is not to come as a jack-booted warrior to smash the opposition. Somehow, although we're not told how here in Isaiah, he will shatter the yoke that burdens his people without becoming a greater oppressor than the enemy. And this child would be born as a son, a son who sits on the throne of David. And yet he would be a wonderful counselor. He would have divine wisdom, a mighty God. He would have divine power, an everlasting father. He would have divine eternity and a prince of peace. He would bring divine peace, the shalom that isn't simply an absence of war but where the world exists in perfect harmony. How could this be? How could this child be divine? How could it be that this child would be both man and God? 
The paradox of this prophecy is staggering, isn't it? The Lord would conquer the enemy, not by sending a warrior, but by sending a child. And this child would be at one time, both a man and God almighty. And hopefully we see that it is hard to understand how these apparent contradictions would be true and would be overcome outside of Jesus Christ who is attested in scripture as born of a virgin Mary, of the virgin Mary, fully man, fully human, but also fully God. Jesus, who is co-eternal with the Father and yet enters into our humanity, enters into our darkness as one of us in order to overcome our sin and death by offering up his perfectly righteous life as a substitutionary and sacrificial death. This is how the enemy is defeated. It isn't through war. It is through the laying down of his life. And it is in him that the world finds an invisible God perfectly revealed. It is in him, therefore, that we find all that we are searching for. Through him, everything is illumined. But there is more paradox here in Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9.1 teaches that God brings honor from humility. This is what Isaiah says, out of contempt comes glory, as it said in the ESV. The NIV says this, in the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. How could that be? How Could we find honor out of our humility? As one commentator states, he brings us down. Only because given our sinfulness, that is the only way he can raise us up. And I think this is where we find how Isaiah begins to prepare the people of God for the coming Messiah. It isn't merely to give them hope that things will get better. It isn't merely to tell them that help is on the way and to give them a picture of what this help will look like in order to recognize him when he comes. Isaiah provides a word on how to prepare for the coming Messiah, the state of the soul necessary to receive the Messiah when he arrives. And so as we think about how we are to await the coming of Christ on this first Sunday in Advent, We learn from Isaiah that our waiting must be in humility, that we must wait in humility. How are we to truly receive the gift that God has given to us in Jesus Christ? And God tells us through his word, everything must be stripped away from us before we are ready to receive the light of God. We must be able to recognize that all of our efforts, all of our striving is never enough. We can't do anything to save ourselves. Our salvation will not come from within. Salvation only comes as a gift from God. Through the prophet Isaiah, God tells his people that the light will dawn. And they haven't done anything to make it happen or to deserve it. It is an act of sheer grace. Grace that can be received or rejected. And it can't be received in any other way than in humility. Now, there are some gifts that are pretty easy to receive, aren't there? 
If someone walks up to me and hands me a $100 bill, then I will receive that gift with great joy in thanksgiving. My response would be, thank you very much. But if you walk up to me and hand me a gift membership to a gym or a book on dieting, well, I might not be so happy to receive that gift because it implies something about me that I might not want to accept. It forces me to recognize something about myself that perhaps I don't want to see. And to receive that gift, I am forced to swallow my pride. And so my response might be to that gift, thank you very much, with not a hint of sarcasm and bitterness in my voice. But so it is with God's gift of salvation. To truly receive it, it forces us to recognize something about ourselves, that we are inadequate, that we are not self-sufficient, that we are powerless, that we are broken, that we are sinful. And this is a hard pill to swallow, as they say. We don't like to be told we can't do something. We don't like to be shown to be inadequate. We want to take care of ourselves. We don't want to have to rely on anyone or anything. The first phrase many of us uttered as a child was, I can do it. We certainly don't want to look at ourselves as imperfect or morally flawed people. But in order to receive the true gift of Christmas, we have to admit that we are sinners in need of saving. We need to confess that we are powerless to save ourselves and live with open hands ready to receive that which we cannot produce ourselves. And this is difficult for us to do. So when Jesus finally arrives, the gospel of John affirms what the prophet Isaiah had said. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And here is what John says. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And John will later tell us why they didn't receive him. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light but does, and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. When the light dawns, it not only reveals all that is good and beautiful and true, it also reveals all that is not. Everything is exposed. It reveals wickedness. It reveals all of our secret sins. It forces us to see things about ourselves that we would rather not see or admit exist. In Jesus, our reality becomes clear. And the choice becomes, do we hold on to the sin that we love? Or do we seek the light? And allow the light of Christ Jesus to show us the depth of its depravity in a way that teaches us to hate it for what it is. Will we allow ourselves to be humbled by the light? And God is very clear. 
As Mary's song says in Luke 1, God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Or as James reminds us, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is what Jesus reveals. He comes not as a tyrant king, but as a lowly servant who does not think highly of himself, but humbles himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. This, Paul tells us, is the source of his exaltation. And so if we wish to receive the light, to walk in the light, to live in the light, to eventually be exalted in the light of God's eternal kingdom, our posture before the Lord is one of humility, as those who bring nothing to the table but our sin. A broken and contrite heart the Lord will not despise, says David. This is how we are to await our coming king. This is not the only way in which we wait, but it is where we start. So dearly beloved, I want to challenge you this morning to use this season as a time to examine yourselves before the Lord and to humble yourselves before him, to confess your sin, to repent of it, and to receive his grace through the promise of forgiveness offered in the great gift of Jesus Christ, that we might truly have joy when the light arises to the glory of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent your light into the world in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would shine this light into the darkest corners of our lives, that we might see the ways in which our lives do not conform with your will to see the areas of our lives in which we still live in rebellion against you. And Lord, let us come and humble ourselves. Humble ourselves before you. Repent of our sin and turn and find newness of life and live in the light of your son, Jesus. We pray this in his holy and precious name. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Nicene Creed. Dearly beloved, in whom do you believe?